Amen. You may be seated. Habakkuk chapter 1. I'm just going to read uh, a couple of verses in, in, in a different parts of the, the book here. But let's start with uh, the very first verse. Habakkuk chapter 1, very first, uh, starting with verse 1 here. The burden which the prophet Habakkuk saw. O Lord, how long shall I cry, and you will not hear? Even cry out to you violence, and you will not save. Why do you show me iniquity and cause me to see trouble? For plundering and violence are before me. There is strife and contention arises. The law is powerless, and justice never goes forth. For the wicked surround the righteous, therefore preserve judgment. Uh, therefore, perverse judgment proceeds. Now, Habakkuk starts here with just a lament, if you will, a question of, Lord, my nation is falling apart. This is what he's saying. He's saying there's violence. There's not real justice. There is perversion. How long will you see these things, God, and not do anything? This is what Habakkuk is praying. This is what he's crying out. This is what he's asking the Lord. Go to chapter 2. And our outline will really kind of begin in chapter 2. That's, uh, that's just kind of the initial kind of heart of where the prophet is here. But look at uh, verse, verse 1, chapter 2. <clears throat> Habakkuk speaking now. I will stand my watch and set myself on the rampart and watch to see what he will say to me and what I will answer when I'm corrected. It's a really good place to start in our life, isn't it? I'm going to stand and wait and see what God has to say to me and I'm going to be listening for how he's going to correct me. Because guess what? He's going to correct every one of us in life. We need to be corrected, don't we? We think we know things a lot of times we don't. You know, Habakkuk was right in his observation, but he still needs God's wisdom to help him to stay centered. He's just saying this song, Jesus be the center of my life. To stay centered, but also to keep the faith in the midst of what he sees all around him. He's troubled by these things. And then in verse 2, he goes on to say, then the Lord answered me. This is God speaking. Write the vision. Make it plain on tablets that he may run who reads it. For the vision is yet for an appointed time, but at the end it will speak and it will not lie. Though it tarries, wait for it, because it will surely come, it will not tarry. Some of the things that God will tell us in his word take time to be revealed. They don't happen overnight. We know that they're written, we know that they're said, but to actually see them manifest, at least in the world around us, or in our own lives, in our family, whatever it is, it takes time and it takes some waiting. And it takes some faith to wait through those things. Now, there's one other passage we'll read that uh, when we get uh, a little closer to the end of the study, and that's going to be in chapter 3, but I'll, I'll hold off on that. But by way of introduction, Habakkuk, if you're wondering, well, who is Habakkuk? Really cool name and all, but who, who is this guy? Habakkuk was a prophet in Israel. He was a contemporary of Jeremiah. You guys heard of Jeremiah, the, known as the, the weeping prophet. He also had great lament about his nation collapsing from the inside out, a, a moral uh, failure. Uh, he was a contemporary of Ezekiel. Ezekiel wrote about uh, the intense judgment to come. And of course, Habakkuk talks about some of that same judgment uh, that is coming. Daniel. Daniel was a contemporary, although Daniel and Ezekiel, they actually lived in Babylon because they were carried away in captivity. Jeremiah stayed back 
in Judah, and, and, and we believe Habakkuk also was back uh, in the promised land, whereas Daniel and Ezekiel were carried away into captivity. At different times they were carried away, but they both ended up in captivity. So you actually had four prophets at the same time, two in the promised land and two in captivity, and all of them were hearing from God. This is a good reminder that God always has his men somewhere in the world. Amen. You know that? Don't think that so-and-so is the only guy. No, there's, he's, he's got different guys stationed, and sometimes they feel alone, but they're really not. So this is, uh, this is kind of, and, and one other was uh, Zephaniah was also during that same time, fe- time period. Uh, but based on chapter 1, verse 6, um, we're not time to look there. You can if you want. But he appears, Habakkuk appears to have written this book in the late 7th century B.C. So late 7th century before Christ came. And probably this was just before, uh, again, based on what the word actually says uh, in chapter 1, uh, probably just before Babylon began its northwestern march of conquering Eventually, it would, uh, it would conquer the Assyrian Empire, which was the predominant empire before Babylon, uh, before it began its northwestern march, and then ultimately Babylon would end up going all the way to Israel and Judah and taking that land, the promised land, from the children of Israel, from the nation of Judah, and it would end up controlling uh, Israel as well. Now, the meaning of Habakkuk's name is not definitive. We don't know for certain. But based on the text itself, one of the possible meanings is found in chapter 1, verse 1, which we just read, uh, and also chapter 3, verse 1, meaning one who embraces. That's a a very possible meaning of his name, one who embraces. Now, in the Bible, you'll notice that people's names were given by God before they were born, and they end up miraculously living out their name again and again and again. Isn't that cool when you see that in the Bible, that God will give someone a name, and they end up living out their name? Now, later on... If, God, if, if they're living out their name in a bad way and they repent like, or, or they come around, God will change their name anyway to a new name. Remember, he gave Jacob, which meant deceiver, into Israel. Uh, you know, so uh, God will change a name, or Saul's name was changed to Paul, and Abram's name was changed to Abraham. But oftentimes, certain prophets would be given a name, and it would be preordained that they would do a great work for the Lord. Even before they're born, they would live out their name. So one who embraces is certainly applicable here because he does indeed embrace uh, the word of God that God gives him. And this would make sense given Habakkuk's uh, situation. And in his case, as in ours, uh, he had to be one that embraces the word of God and embraces the faithfulness of God. And you and I have to embrace the word of God and we have to embrace the faithfulness of God. Habakkuk, he was, as I mentioned, he was very troubled by the condition of his day. Are you troubled by the condition of your day? When you see things that are happening in our country that just people are becoming more and more completely cold and heartless at every level. And some it might exhibit in a violent crime, but others it just exhibits in a complete indifference to anybody. You know? doesn't matter. Some companies say, hey, let's just... Uh, let's just fire a thousand employees. Let's not worry about reducing our bonus one bit. Instead, just let them all go. It could be something like that, or it could be obviously something that actually someone physically harming or saying, hey, unborn babies don't matter. And, uh, they're not even a human being. Of course, God says otherwise. We know that Jesus was referred to as a child before he was born. 
the child in her womb, the scripture says. So we see the you know, cold condition of our own day, and uh, Habakkuk was troubled by what he saw in his day. Now, what had taken place, the godly leadership, Judah had been under a godly king, and his name was Josiah. But he died, as a matter of fact, he died in a battle. Um, but the reforms that he had implemented in the nation, re- godly reforms, that would be like getting a godly leader and actually having a bunch of very godly reforms. Like It would be like a, someone in our country saying, we're bringing prayer back into the schools. Uh, the Ten Commandments can go back up on the walls, things like that. But, but more widespread than that and more impactful than that, uh, he had reduced a lot of the things that were idolatrous in the nation, a lot of uh, reforms had taken place. Uh, but under, after his death, the godless reforms that he had implemented in the nation quickly dissolved with his death. Israel slid straight back into uh, an idolatrous, wicked condition. Judah, uh, it rapidly plummeted back into idolatry, back into immorality. Wickedness and violence and corruption became commonplace in the day of Habakkuk. Now, he longed to see righteousness, and he longed to see the blessing of God on his nation and his people. Do you long to see the blessing of God in your family, and people in your family that are still lost, and you see the misery that they live in, or just kind of the... the, um, oppression that they may be under, our nation itself. He longed to see uh, God do a work in his people. That should sound familiar to us, many of our prayers. His lament essentially was this, though. His lament was essentially, why isn't God changing any of this? Now, everybody prays this prayer at times, right? It could be personal to you. It doesn't have to be national. Or, and a matter of fact, more times than not, when we pray this prayer, it is personal to us. Why isn't God changing this, that, or the other? It could be financial. It could be emotional. It could be relational. All types of things. Why isn't God changing this, any of this? Now, the core of what Habakkuk comes to learn and proclaim is that God is to be trusted. This is the core of what he comes to learn. God is to be trusted, and we are to live by faith, especially when things around us seem to defy what we know to be true. Again, if you, if you believe, man, I believe everything God has said, I know that's true, but things around us defy our belief a lot of times, don't they? If you're taking notes this morning, I've titled uh, our time the word, The Balance of Belief. The Balance of Belief, because you have to balance belief against many things that would cause you to kind of wobble and fall off. Lessons from Habakkuk. Many things in life test our belief. Many types of trials test our belief. Sickness can test your belief. Physical pains, limitations can affect your belief. Diseases, just chronic health issues, these things can affect your belief. The death of a loved one can affect your belief or impact it. The loss of a spouse or a child can turn a person's world upside down overnight. The disruption or the loss of a relationship. I mean, we have, we have young people in, in this country that are actually taking their lives over lost relationships. I mean, it's tragic. It's satanic, by the way. It's satanic that somebody would be, would be so deceived to believing that this is the answer to their problems. But again, the diff- belief is life-giving. Unbelief is death. Complete 
opposite end of the spectrum. People uh, mourning the, a prodigal, that can challenge your belief. I mean, all these things we did, we poured the word of God, and they've walked away from God? That can challenge someone's belief. But like Habakkuk, the change in culture can challenge our belief, can't it? Yeah, a lot, do you, you realize a lot of churches are changing the word of God to match the culture? By the way, I read an interesting article this week. It's actually out by the Washington Post. I'm going to be, I'm going to be retweeting it or uh, putting it out on my Facebook site or something, but it was an article in the Washington Post, uh, very recent, and um, a study was done of Canadian churches and found that liberal churches that are denying the Word of God are dwindling, but churches that are preaching the Word of God are growing. There's hope for us here, folks. We keep preaching the Word, we will grow. Because people are getting tired of lies. And they want truth. We're not going to water anything down here, uh, but we, we're not going to, um, you know, be you know, beating people over the head. We're, I'm not a modern-day prophet. I'm just called to teach the Word of God. And every other pastor around the world is called just to teach the Word of God. And it's going to say some things you don't like sometimes. It's going to say some things that really comfort you. But in both cases, it's going to always help you. And so... Uh, in, in, the, in the, I think around the 70s and then all, up until then, a lot of the seminaries, liberal seminaries, that started to basically deny the resurrection, deny the virgin birth, deny the core tenets of the gospel, and started to teach seminary. And these guys went out and became the pastors of mainline denominations, and they thought that the church would explode. And in fact, those denominations are dying fast. They're dwindling. That's why all the mainline churches in England, the doors have been shut. Many of them have been turned into mosques. Do you realize that? Because they denied the Word of God. But when the Word of God is preached, there's churches in England that are growing. There's Calvary chapels growing in Europe. There's Calvary chapels growing in Canada. Uh, we're growing here in America. Wherever we preach the Word, people, I'm telling you, they need the Word of God. Habakkuk's day, they needed it. We need it too. But the changing culture can challenge people's beliefs. Say, well, I guess we should change. If the Supreme Court says it, we must need to do that. No. There's a Supreme Court, and it's called the throne of heaven. Much higher. Much, much higher. Success can challenge our belief. Well, that's one that can mess people's belief system up because they get inoculated or uh, kind of filled with their own success. This happened to Solomon, by the way. It's so much success that he stopped his faith in God for a while. Success can challenge people's belief. Uh, By the way, with the culture, you can look around and uh, say, is everyone losing their mind, or maybe they're all right? Or has God lost control? And and God would remind, no, 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 I'm, I'm in control. The right mind is the mind focused on Christ. The right mind uh, might be challenged with success, but won't believe in success, will actually believe in the Savior. Bottom line is almost anything in life can cause us to doubt the faithfulness and the reliability of God. Even if you have a lot of faith, you can sometimes doubt the reliability of God. I don't care how long you've been saved. I don't care if you're a pastor or you're the prayer warrior uh, here that's uh, more than anybody else. You can still doubt at times. But again, real faith plows through doubts, doesn't give in to them. 
right? Think of this whole term, balance of belief. If you've watched uh, an Olympic athlete on the balance beam, there's times that I've seen they look like they're going down, but they don't go down, right? And that's the difference between winning a gold and not even meddling, right? A wobble can happen to all of us, but there's a big difference between diving off the beam, right? My wife is a gymnast, so I sometimes think in those terms, you know. I appreciate football. She appreciates gymnastics, you know. (laughs) We've learned to appreciate each other's things. But know this for certain. We cannot be trusted to, we can't be trusted to bring anything to pass. Can any here here bring anything to pass? God used the terms, he said, I will bring it to pass. He uses that term in the Bible. We can't bring anything to pass. We can't make anything happen. I'm going to make it happen. You can't make anything happen. Right? You're not guaranteed the next heartbeat. But God can bring things to pass. He can make things happen. He's the only one that is the I am that everything he says can be trusted and reliable and we can believe in. Let's start first at, um, if you're taking notes, is my clicker over there? Well, these snow days really mess you up, I'm telling you. <laughs> I want to fir- first look at something I've titled, uh, oh, back one. That should say believing in. So anyway. Oh, there it is. Okay, good. (laughs) This thing and me are going to have it out one day. In John 14, 1, uh, we were in John 14 last week. In John 14, 1, uh, the very first verse of that chapter, we were in verses 11 through the end of the chapter, but in the very first uh, verse... Jesus said these words. He said, let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. Now, to the hearers, he was, he was making the assumption that everyone in Israel said they believed in God. And by the way, on our dollar bill, we have, in God we trust. That's not really true for most of Americans. Wouldn't you agree? I mean, I'm not being disrespectful of them. I, I love them, but most Americans... Do not trust in God. It's not the primary focus of their life. They trust in the dollar that they're holding, but not actually the words in God we trust. And in Israel, both in the ancient times of Habakkuk, but also in the days of Christ, the mindset, well, we all believe in God, but really, they didn't all believe in God. But Jesus said, for those of you who really do believe in God, you better believe in me, right? Because he says, no one comes to the Father but by what? Me. Everything about the Christian life begins with belief. Everything about the Christian life begins with belief. And that belief begins with beginning in God the Father. Even Jesus said, when you pray, pray, our Father, who's art in heaven. The first thing, he says, start with the Father. Everything begins with believing in the Father, but through the Son. Through the Son. The Son is the doorway to the relationship to the Father. And if you believe in God the Father, you will believe in Jesus. I remember one time I was witnessing to, um, I was having a a discussion with two people from Brazil. I was living in uh, South Florida. We'd only been saved for like two years. I was having a discussion with two ladies. They lived in our uh, apartment complex. They were both from Brazil. And they both said they were Roman Catholic. And they told me, they said, well, we believe in God. We just don't believe in Jesus. I said, Hold on a second. 
what Bible are you reading? Because if you believe in God, you will believe in his son. And your life will be in the Son. It's the blood of the Son that gives you the relationship with the Father. You can't actually have a relationship or even a belief in God without believing in His Son. This is why Jesus came. He was the physical representation of God, Emmanuel, in human flesh. So Jesus said, believe in me. And our belief in a God and a Savior that we can't see with our physical eyes is what we call faith. None of us, well... I don't know, perhaps, I mean, maybe there's someone in here that God really did, appear, Jesus appeared in a dream. And I know this has happened and is happening in some of the Muslim countries, some of the Hindu countries. I have, a not, I have never seen Jesus physically, not even in a dream or a vision. I have not seen God. Of course, if we try and see God in our physical condition, we won't live to tell about it. We have to be in our glorified state for that to work out well. But regardless of not seeing Christ we still believe in him anyway. Amen? Amen. Amen. We believe as if we've seen him already. Now, faith in Christ isn't just blind, it isn't blind faith by any means. We have creation all around us, right? You look at the complexity of creation, it, it tells you there has to be a creator. And Jesus says, he is the creator of the worlds. We have our own fallen and flawed conditions. Do you realize our own fallen state keeps us from having blind faith? Because we see how flawed we are. We know there has to be something higher than us. Right? We have the Word of God. We can read something perfect. The only perfect thing you'll ever handle in your lifetime is this right here. The only perfect thing. Even if you have duct tape on it like mine. Which really, this Gorilla Grip duct tape uh, really helps a Bible out. It's falling apart. We have changed lives that are a witness to the reality of Jesus Christ, including our own, our own changed lives. And these are just some of the evidence that allows us to not have blind faith, but a proven faith to believe in. And yet, we still doubt at times, still, don't we? In the midst of all that, we still doubt. Well, we really should be doubting our doubts not doubting the Lord. And Habakkuk had the same thing. Lord, why? When, why have you forgotten? Have you not heard any of my prayers? Have you not seen what's going on here? Are you unaware of what's happening? Are you not going to breathe life into what is becoming of this country and becoming of this nation, the people around me? Turn with me to John chapter 20. I had referenced, and if you look on the uh, We Believe board, I have signed it. I'm, I, I was the first one. I didn't write my words. I wrote these words of Jesus. But I want to I take the opportunity today to have you see them in context. You've all heard of Thomas. Poor guy gets the uh, moniker Doubting Thomas. Uh, Thomas was a man of great faith. So uh, until we've exhibited some of the faith that he's had, I would suggest we stop calling him that <laughs> because he exhibited a lot of faith in his life. We would have been in just as skeptical, I believe, as Thomas. But, you know, he was ready to die for the Lord in other passages. And he ends up, ends up dying a martyr's death. So, um, you know, he does kind of get um, <laughs> this treatment. It's funny when you hear Christians that don't have even a fraction of his faith calling him Doubting Thomas. I'm like, can, can at least this be like a Billy Graham or someone called him this or something instead of you know, the, uh, the, the average ho-hum uh, believer? 
But anyway, Thomas, um, he still is rebuked by the Lord uh, because Jesus uh, is going to correct anybody. He corrects, you see in the scriptures, Moses gets corrected, David gets corrected, Paul gets corrected, everyone uh, gets corrected, and Thomas gets corrected here. But it's for our good too. It's not just for his admonishment. We benefit from it. And so Jesus had, uh, had risen from the dead, and he appeared to the other disciples, but Thomas still couldn't believe it because he's like, look, I, I saw he was dead, dead. But Jesus had told Thomas and the other disciples, I'm going to be killed, and I'm going to be in the grave for three days, and then I'm going to rise again. Now, he told them that on more than three occasions, on multiple occasions they had been told this, and yet when it happened, they just couldn't believe it. And by the way, in your life, God is telling you, when you do your devotions, and you read something, and you highlight a verse, and you mark a date on it or something, God's telling you, I will bring this to pass. And then later you'll say, I'm just thinking, it's never going to happen now. It's just never going to happen. I'm never going to see this victory. I'm never going to see this happen. I'm never going to see so-and-so saved. And sometimes, even in spite of our doubts, God shows up and does it anyway to show us, look, I'm faithful even when you start to doubt. And here in John chapter 20, Jesus appears in verse 26 and stands in the midst of them. It's really cool because Jesus just kind of literally kind of does the Star Trek thing and just shows up. He doesn't walk into the room. He just all of a sudden appears. And he's standing in the middle of them. He says, peace to you. Because he knows that they're all still troubled in various manners. Uh, and he knows that when he speaks to the body of Christ, he's speaking to all of us, peace to us, because he knows that all of us struggle with peace at times, if not at all times. And then he said to Thomas, he looks straight to Thomas, because he's aware that Thomas is the one in the room that's still really struggling with all this, and says, Thomas, reach, in, reach your finger in here and look at my hands and reach uh, your hand here and put it into my side. And this is what I wrote up on our board up here. It's highlighted in my Bible. Do not be unbelieving, but believing. Do not be unbelieving, but believing. And this is a word for us for the rest of our life. Not be unbelieving. There's a lot of things that will make us be unbelieving. Like I said, one of the biggest problems in our country is success and prosperity actually makes us unbelieving because we start to believe in what we can produce for ourselves. But Thomas answers, you know, Thomas uh, doesn't make any excuses at this point. He just simply, look at his response. Thomas answered and said to him, my Lord and my God. By the way, it's one of the great passages if, you're, if you end up witnessing to someone who's a, a Mormon uh, faith, or let's say Jehovah's Witness, and they, they don't believe that Jesus is God. Thomas worships him as God, and Jesus doesn't rebuke that worship. He receives it as God. Of course, John 1.1 1, 1 tells us this anyway. And Jesus said to him, Thomas, because you have seen, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and believed. And that's us. I've never seen Jesus nail pierced side. I mean, his uh, sword pierced side. I've never seen his nail pierced hand. But I know more than I know. I'm standing here. I know it exists. How about you? I know Jesus is in heaven right now. I know he's looking down and saying, America, repent. I know he's looking down and saying, I want to salvage that marriage. I know he's looking down and saying, I want to bring that prodigal home. I know he exists. I know for certain. I don't know if I'll live another year or 10 years or 50 years, but I know Jesus exists. Amen. 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 And you can know. Once you know that, everything else you can believe will follow. True? You have to have that foundational initial belief in believing in him. And so Thomas was strengthened by that. 
And look at verses 30 and 31. We'll just finish this out. And truly Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book. The end of John tells us that all the books in the world couldn't contain everything Jesus did. Unbelievable, huh? It's just a short period of time. Verse 31, but these are written that you may believe that Jesus Christ, the Son of God, uh, in, uh, that Jesus Christ is the Christ, the Son of God, and believing you may have life in his name. The life we have is in believing in him. That's everything. Even if you don't understand it, theologic, just accept it. There's a lot of things I don't understand about what God says, but you just go ahead and believe in him and everything else will start to follow. Now, belief begins, with belief it, uh, comes obedience because remember uh, what uh, Habakkuk says here in chapter 2. Go turn back to Habakkuk now. Uh, chapter 2, verse 1, he said, I will stand my watch, I will set myself on the rampart, and watch to see what he will say to me, and what I will answer when I'm corrected. When God corrects us, it's that we're to be obedient to the correction. Thomas, now go into all the world and preach the gospel, which he would then go do, right? Now that I've corrected, you obey. Believe in me, trust and obey, for there's what? No other way. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, he gave his life for Christ, said, unless he obeys, a man cannot believe. Unless he obeys, a man cannot believe. So belief in Jesus and obedience to Jesus go hand in hand. We looked at that uh, some last week. Now that's believing in. Let's take a look at the next Okay, I got them backwards. There we go, believing on. It was user error, so anyway. Believing on. This is also um, in the same chapter 2 here, starting in verse 2. Then the Lord, we read this already, but uh, then the Lord answered me and said, write the vision, make it plain on tablets that he may run, and uh, he may run who reads it, for the vision is yet for a point of time, but the end it will speak and it will not lie, though it tarries, wait for it because it will not, uh, because it will surely come, it will not tarry. Now look at verse 4 as well while we're here. Behold the proud, his soul is not upright in him, but the just shall live by faith. That verse sound familiar to you? The just shall live by faith? Now if you've read the New Testament, you've read the verse a couple times if you read the whole New Testament, whether you realize or not, Paul quotes that same verse twice, once, uh, is in our study of Galatians. Galatians chapter 3, Paul quotes that same passage. It comes from here in Habakkuk. You'll also see the passage uh, repeated in the book of Hebrews, the just shall live by faith. Now it tells us again, uh, one of the best commentaries, well, not one of the best, the best commentary in the Old Testament is the New Testament. And so the New Testament brings forward the things that were revealed in the Old Testament in the light of the ministry of Jesus Christ. In the New Testament, this living by faith is believing in Jesus, but then we have the Word of God to actually be the roadmap. And we see that in Proverbs as well. Thy Word is what? Lamp unto my feet and a light to my path. The Word, the written Word. Now, Jesus is the Word. He's the incarnate Word, but He's also given us the written Word, which we call the Scriptures of the Bible, right? So we believe in him, but we believe on the word or the promises that are in the word. And this is what we see uh, is said to Habakkuk, write the vision on tablets. What, did the, what happened when the Ten Commandments were given to Moses? Did Moses write them? No. Actually, the finger of God wrote them. But the word was given, codified in stone and given to Moses. And then Moses was supposed to do what? Hide them? 
No, he was to re-then share them with everyone so they would be distributed around the world that the whole world would have the commandments of God. And the same is true with the written word. Make the, uh, write the vision, make it plain on tablets, that he may run who reads it. Well, we've been given the word of God to run the race with endurance. Why endurance? Because many things will attack and assail our belief, right? But if you read the word and stay in the word, it helps you endure through the changing culture, through the trials of life, through success periods of life and all those things, and you stay the course. Our faith needs an anchor, and the anchor is the Word of God. That's why this ministry, Calvary Chapel, we go verse by verse to the Word of God, because you really don't need my great stories. You don't. You will survive if you never hear another pastor give you one more great story ever. Now, they're helpful for illustrations. I'm, I use them myself, but you don't need them. You actually need the Word of God. The other stuff is good for communication, but only the Word of God is good for revelation. Revelation only comes from God. I can communicate, but God gives revelation. And so we need that as our anchor. And Psalm 119.89 says, Forever, O Lord, your word is settled in heaven. It's never going away. My illustrations will go away in heaven. They won't be necessary. God will be in our presence. You won't need another illustration. You'll actually have God fully revealed in your presence. But the word will still be there. Isn't that great? The word will still be there. I don't know. We might even see just a giant book that has all the scriptures. The Bible talks about the books are opened, and we might literally see that God has preserved, and of course we know he's preserved it, but in the different formats in heaven, I believe there'll be more than one format, from Jesus to other formats, but it'll always be preserved. It's settled in heaven. And in Matthew 24, 35, Jesus himself said, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will by no means pass away. His words transcend the universe. They spoke it into existence, but they will never pass away. When our belief is fading, when it's wobbling, as we mentioned earlier, when it's drying up, sometimes Christians I meet, they say, I'm really in a dry spell. We've all been there. We've all been dry. I've been times where I've read the Bible and it just doesn't even speak to me at first. But I always know who's the problem there. I'm pretty sure it's not the perfection part of the equation, right? When the Word of God isn't speaking to me, I can look in the mirror and find who is at fault. Even if we're not trying to be. We're, even when you're trying to be spoken to and you can't be spoken to, God sometimes says, you're going to have to wait a little bit. Right? You ever thought a piece of meat would thaw and they said time that it said it would thaw? And then you go and it's about five o'clock cooked dinner and it's hard as a rock? It said five hours to thaw. It meant 25 hours to thaw, right? That's sometimes the condition of our heart when we go to read. It hasn't thawed and so we've got to stay a little longer. The Word of God is not the problem. No, it's actually the light that exposes where we're at including if we're just in a downtime. I mean, we, we have these dry periods. But when we have, whether it's dry, uh, whether we're wobbling, uh, you know, whether it's fading, whatever, we have to run, not walk to the Word of God. And, and say, well, instead, I'm just going to read so-and-so's bestseller at Lifeway. No. You can read that after you've been revived, and it probably will be helpful, but it won't be helpful before it. 
It's an after-dinner men or something, if you will. The same is true if apathy or lukewarmness is set in. I'm feeling apathetic, so I think I'm not going to go to the Bible study. That's the time you need to go to the Bible study. I'm feeling so down, I'm not going to go to the men's night. That's the time you need to be there. More than any time is when you don't feel like doing something that's probably... You think Habakkuk felt like being a prophet? No. There's other manifestations of unbelief, but uh, lukewarmness and apathy is a manifestation of unbelief. You recognize that? It actually is a form, apathetic is a form of unbelief. If the disciples were apathetic, they wouldn't go in all the world and preach the gospel. And if they wouldn't go all the world and preach the gospel, they didn't believe Jesus' words, right? If they believe his words, they can't be apathetic. The word of God, it's alive and it's powerful. And when we meditate on it, we're reminded of the faithfulness of God. You ever been really just down or you're kind of depressed or you're sad and you start reading the Psalms and they start to lift your spirit? Because it actually has supernatural power. It's better than a leave. Right? Well, a leave can help with things like knee pain, but the word can help with heart pain and emotional strain and stress levels and doubtings, and all these other things, and the prophets needed it, David needed it, Moses needed it. You know, I, I've mentioned it before, one of my favorite passages is Moses prayed this prayer to God. He really prayed this, where we get the term, uh, shoot me now, right? He prayed, Lord, if I've found favor in your life, please take my life. <laughs> he had so tired of the children of Israel, he said, if, if I've found any favor in you, please strike me dead. And God didn't answer his request. You know what he gave him? more of the word. And what did that do? It changed his perspective. When you and I are praying something, and it might be a sincere prayer, it could be sincerely wrong, but it's still a sincere prayer, and we're praying that prayer, and God says, I'm not answering that, get back in the word, and then he changed our perspective. Isn't that great? That's what he does. The more we meditate on these things, the more we are reminded of the faithfulness of God, the truth of God and we're reminded of the lies of our own flesh. It's in the Word of God that I see, oh, now I see why I started thinking that way. It was my idea. Or Satan can plant the idea or things like that, but we're reminded of the love of God. We need to be loved by God. We, whether we recognize we need to be loved by God, we do. We need the grace of God. And our faith and our belief is revived, right? You ever had, um, you ever had a plant that you thought for sure you'd killed? And then you, sit, you caught it just in the nick of time. I've had a few times, and usually I don't catch them in time. Usually they are dead, gone. But there's been a couple of times where I've had plants that I was supposed to water a certain amount of time, and I thought for sure there's no way this is coming back to life. But I started watering, I put a little more soil back in there, and in three or four days, thing comes back, start, flowers start blooming. This is what God does with us on a regular basis, right? Uh, remember it said of Jesus, it said... Um, a smoking flax he will not quench. You know what that means? It meant just a, a, a thin flax piece that was, that was a, about to just kind of disintegrate. Jesus would be able to grab it and instead of disintegrate it, re-strengthen it. He has that touch on us on a regular basis. And that's why 
We need to get under the Word of God, get in the Word of God, be revived by the Word of God. See, belief, it's, it's like, uh, belief can be like a battery that's draining. You know, your cell phone is starting to drain, it's down to like, it starts, saying, the little battery thing, you have 7% left. Uh, by the way, when my laptop does this, the warning never helps me because it says, you have seven minutes, and it really means seven seconds because, uh, boom, off. Uh, but we need the Word and the promises of God to constantly recharge us, to constantly recharge us. A.W. Tozer, uh, in addition to being a great pastor and, and wrote, uh, not only did he preach uh, messages that many pastors today study and many Christians study, uh, but in addition to him meditating on the Word of God, which, which he was known to do, and obviously that uh, Psalm chapter 1 tells us the value of meditating on the Word of God. But in addition to meditating on the Word of God, do you know what he also made it a habit to do? He meditated on hymns. He meditated on the Word of God, but he also meditated on hymns. And the reason why is so many of the hymns, and we were, I think we sung a hymn this morning, right? Uh, but so many of the hymns, they're doctrinally deep, and they're actually reflective of Scripture. So they're not just doctrinally deep, they're reflective of Scripture. Some of them incorporate Scripture directly into the hymn. Uh, but if they don't directly quote it, they're actually just principles of Scripture built into the worship. And from time to time, uh, some years more than others, I'll go through seasons where some years I'll get into the hymns a lot during the year, and then the next two years I won't, and then I'm back in them, and uh, kind of uh, back and forth in that respect. But in some years or even some months, I'll come back to the hymns, or I'll come back and, and, and study them a little bit or uh, reread them. But because of their scriptural depth, and because of their, they're written in this poetic form in describing the realities of life, especially most of them were written in difficult time, not in like, yay, everything's going perfect. But because of them, uh, they're very helpful, and they provide great encouragement a lot of today's music, there's some really good music today, by the way. There's some very good worship music being written, but there's a lot of it that's very fluff. It's like eating cotton candy, right? It tastes pretty good, but there's no substance there. And the hymns, they actually have the substance because the substance, the backbone of them is Scripture. And lately, um, and by the way, one thing before I say this, hymns uh, like really good worship music, they can't replace Scripture, but they're complementary to it. They're complementary. Uh, my teaching on a Sunday, it doesn't replace Scripture. It's just complementary to Scripture. It doesn't replace it. You have, still have to have a steady diet of it. But lately, I've been reflecting on, on various hymns. Uh, as I started the year, I've just reflected, starting in late 2016, and just been reflecting on different ones. And I thought of this one. I thought of this hymn uh, as it related to what we believe on. We believe on the Word of God. We believe in Christ. We believe on the Word of God. And I was reflecting on this particular hymn. It was written in 1886. And you might know the title, Standing on the Promises of God. Written in 1886. And the stanza two is really the one uh, that really reflects uh, the power of the Word in our life. It says, standing on the promises that cannot fail when the howling storms of doubt and fear assail. By the living word of God, I shall prevail. Standing on the promises of God. It's this, there's that third line. By the living word of God, I shall prevail. That's how we prevail, through things. 
through doubts, through discouragements. The fifth and final stanza is standing on the promises, I shall not fail. Listening every moment to the Spirit, uh, I'm sorry, standing on the promises, I shall not fall. Listening every moment to the Spirit's call. Resting in my Savior is my all in all, standing on the promises of God. Next week we'll be in that passage about the Holy Spirit, and that last stanza is listening every moment to the Spirit's call. Do you see how the Word of God and the Spirit of God are right together? They are import- they're equally important. You have to have belief first, then you have to have the Word, then you have to have the Spirit of God, but they all are working together. And let's look at the last thing. So I get to skip twice here. Leaving, Leaving in spite of, as we come to a close here. I want to read the last part of Habakkuk. Turn uh, in, back in your Bibles, chapter 3. Look at verses 17 through 19. This is a beautiful passage if you've never uh, highlighted it in your Bible, if you've never uh, kind of meditated. This is a great three verses to meditate on in your life. And, and I refer back to this passage often. Uh, it's been a, and there's several anchor pieces in this passage, so you can meditate on different parts of it. But look at verse 17 to start with. Though the fig tree may not blossom, nor fruit be on the vines... Though the labor of the olive may fail, and the fields yield no food, though the flock may be cut off in the fold, and there be no herd in the stalls, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will joy in the God of my salvation. The Lord God is my strength. He will make my feet like deer's feet. Remember remember Gwen's heels right there? You can see that? Uh, That tiny little thing, you know. And he will make me walk on my high hills. This is what Habakkuk writes at the end of lamenting and this back and forth prayer with God and getting prophecy about judgment to come and still being kind of torn in all directions about what's happening to him, his culture, his, you know, his beliefs are being challenged, his faith is being challenged, and all these things. And he comes to this conclusion that if nothing grows... Everything fails. Verse 18, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will joy in the God of my salvation. What Habakkuk learned was that believing in God, it supersedes all circumstances. It doesn't matter what you see. If the entire United States come to the conclusion that being born again is the most wacko thing you could possibly choose, all they're doing is confirming Scripture. You realize that, right? Romans 3, 4 said, Indeed, let God be true and every man a liar. Every man. It doesn't matter what the rest of the world says. God is still true. He's still on the throne. God wants us to come to the place that our belief is in him, that our trust in his word, it isn't the slightest bit dependent upon life going according to plan. Right? The thing about human beings, especially in American culture today, is we have a planned map, and this is how life is going to go. Exactly how it should go. Uh, This is what I've planned. Uh, This is going to work. And God is known for disrupting plans. But a lot of times the plan is just our view of the plan. God's plan was actually working in Habakkuk's life even when he didn't think it was working. You ever been there? I'm sure Joseph didn't think God's plan was. He got a prophecy when he was a young man that says, 
uh, all your brothers are going to bow down before you. Then they sold him into slavery. They said, we'll fix your dream. You're going to be a slave. Then he was in a dungeon. And not like today's three-square-meal jail cell situation. He was in a dungeon, and he was there for a long time. We believe he was, he was kind of either a slave or in jail for 12 to 13 years. 12 to 13 years. He's got to be thinking God's plan has failed. Abraham, supposed to have a baby at some point. Well, he didn't, Sarah was doing that part of the job, but you know what I mean, right? They were together. Supposed to have a baby. Year after year goes by. Still isn't happening. Still isn't happening. But God's plan was was guaranteed to succeed when Joseph didn't think so and Abraham didn't think so. Wouldn't you agree? We just get to read the end of the book. If you were in their life, you would be wringing your hands. So would I. Like, this isn't going to work. This hasn't worked yet. Why do I keep bothering? Right? But they would be the first ones to come say to you, hey, that hymn he was talking about, we lived it out. We just stood on the promises of God. Now, there were times that, that Abraham did wobble, and there's actually no mention of sin in Joseph's life because he's a, he's a type, a ty- his typology of Christ. He did sin, don't get me wrong, but I'm just saying the his- Scripture never records. His response was always the correct response as, as it's recorded in Scripture. But I know that he probably was pretty bummed out at times in the jail cell thinking, I don't think this whole wheat bowing down thing is ever going to happen. But what did he do in the process? Even when he didn't think it was going to happen, he still kept following God. Now, you might say, well, something such and so hasn't happened yet. You just keep following God. Say, well, a little bit, just hang on by the thread belief, but keep doing what you're supposed to be doing, right? I can still read, I can still pray, and in the backdrop, wait for that to either come to pass in God's timing, or if God has a different kind of twist on that that we'll come to see later in time. Not only does God... Not only does he want our faith uh, to be in him regardless of circumstances, he wants us to get to the place where we can actually ignore the circumstances. Right? To get to the place we can truly ignore. And Moses' faith became so strong at some point, it wasn't, but he could stand at the foot of the Red Sea and he really believed God was going to make a way. Isn't that amazing? The Egyptian army is coming, everybody else is like, panic, let's commit suicide. Moses like, stop. God can make a way. You and I have to get to the place where we can actually be strong enough in our faith to tell our kids, hey, God can make a way. And mean it, right? And actually say it. I'm speaking to our young people too because they, being, their faith's being pulled in all different directions. They need to be centered on these things as well. Not only would we be able to ignore the doubts and circumstances, but look at verse 18 again. Yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will joy in the God of myself. You can actually have joy and rejoicing in the middle of this. Isn't that amazing? Joy and rejoicing in the middle of things not going according to plan. Uh, I don't know if you saw that list, but all right, there's no figs on the tree. That's not a good thing. There's no olives on the tree. There's no labor coming from the olives. There's no food at all. The fields don't, or the, the field, zero harvest. And oh, by the way, the flock is gone, has been cut off from the fold. And there's no herd in the stall either. So the cattle too. What a wonderful day 
Habakkuk would be saying. Now, this is also a picture of Israel, too. The flock has gone away. The olive tree and the fig tree are both typologies of the nation-state of Israel. So he's like, hey, this is uh, not a good time. And yet he could rejoice. You and I can rejoice even when the provision doesn't seem to be there. You know, if you've ever ridden, read any of, like, Corrie ten Boone, The Hiding Place, and, 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 and there in the concentration camps in Nazi Germany, and what she learned from her sister Betsy, and things, you can realize that God's kind of lived this out in other people's lives. And you can learn to rejoice and believe God in the midst of anything. The result, well, the result is uh, not only the joy, and by the way, it's in salvation. It goes back to Christ again. When we're apathetic, when we're down, when we're lukewarm, when we're doubting, we have forgotten our salvation because our salvation brings joy and it brings rejoicing. We have, we'll stop and start rejoicing again. Grab a hymn, start meditating on it, and you'll start rejoicing. The result? Well, the balance of belief becomes possible in a slippery and difficult world. You ever seen mountain goats or deer run on hills? Their eyes are not even looking at the hill, and somehow, it almost seems magical to me. Their feet hit every little, there's only like sometimes this much to latch onto, and you know, the hunter would like fall and smash his face trying to run on the same piece of rock, and the deer mocks, just And I, I remember seeing, uh, we, were, we were on a family walk in somewhere uh, here in Virginia, and, and I saw what the deer jumped down into, and they skipped off, and I would think they would have to die with that jump. But no, there would be little tiny pieces they would grab onto, and they would make, and they're running full stride, not slowing down. You ever seen these like mountain goats and uh, like Europe on the Alps and things like that? They'll actually be in these little crevices, and this is what the writer is saying. Habakkuk said, I've seen these in Israel. They have these different kind of, um, the ibexes are there. They also have deer, and they, they really kind of blow the human mind because you're like, how are they not even looking? Their eyes are looking ahead, and yet their feet know where to go. Thy word is a lamp unto what? Our feet. To our feet. Remember he said in, in chapter 2, he said, I will stand my watch. There's the feet again. God strengthens in Ezekiel. The ankles are strengthened. The feet are strengthened. He'll make my feet like deer's feet, and he'll make me walk on my high hills. Not only will we, he says, the Lord God is my strength, not only is the Lord be our strength, but we'll actually take new heights of steps of victory and faith. Who wouldn't want that, right? The Lord promises to keep us from falling, and he promises to help us climb new heights, even if the circumstances say otherwise. That's a great word for the church and us individually. Let's close in prayer.